what is up pod nation welcome to the patio slate podcast uh we like to see ourselves as kind of like the flea market vinyl booth you know dusty random random shit you know you're just kind of scuffling through some random random nerdery so we're here podcast potty slate podcast with my friends anthony and tone what are you guys doing tonight it's Anthony here. Yeah, we're like the we got the jazz section covered. We got the metal section. We got the punk and hardcore. We got the classic rock. It's all in one spot. You got dusty fingers. We're here to scratch that itch. Tony, we had uh, quite the guest tonight. Who do we have? We did. We did. Uh, going out of the double digit episodes, number ninety nine with a bang. We had Benny Horowitz of uh, the Low End Theory, and then the Gaslight Anthem, which you probably know from uh, you know him being in that band, and also uh, he's he's done some uh, new stuff with Mercy Union, right? That's the new band he's in now. So he's a podcaster as well. Uh, his two podcasts are going off track. And then he also has the tune up, which is a little more sports oriented. And we get into a little sports nerdery with him too, because he's an NBA head. He likes the Nets. We like the Celtics. He's got a one up on us right now. Cause his team's better. So lots of fun with Benny tonight. Lots of music nerdery, lots of, uh, you know, ground up DIY stuff all the way to being the big, the big time band with gaslight Anthem. Uh, yeah, here it is. Benny, Benny Horowitz. Hey guys, if you like what you hear tonight, go back and check out some of our other interviews. We've had uh, Frank Turner, who I think Benny had on as well on his Going Off Track podcast. We had Peanut from 311, Tucker Rule, which we mentioned with Benny here coming up uh, from Thursday, Brian Fair of Shadows Fall and Overcast, uh, Ryan Sinnott of The Distillers, Jason Tate, who we talk about a little bit, Absolute Punk Days too, with Benny here coming up. Yeah, go check all that stuff out. Uh, hit us up on patioslave.com. You'll see everything there. You can get to our socials. You can get to our interviews. You can get to our press. It's all hanging out right there at www.patioslave.com. Thanks. Benny, thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. We appreciate uh, you spending your time with us. Uh, pleasure. I'm, I'm currently Googling uh, pizza places in Portland, Maine, trying to help nice. you out. But yeah. I'll, <laughs> yep. I'll, I'll focus for now. I'll focus for now. So I, we're, we're kind of blessed on this podcast because in the last month, we've had two what I call New Jersey drummer royal, drumming royalty. We had oh. Tucker Rule from Thursday on about a month ago. He would definitely be in that category. That's awesome. Would you put yourself in that category? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, but if you would like to, I'm not going to argue with you. It's nice. I'm getting old. I'll take some accolades. Nice. Uh, but yeah, but it's funny with Tucker because we, I mean, yeah, I watched him, you know, straight up come up. One of my older bands, The Low End Theory, played a number of Thursday's first shows when they were just like getting off the ground playing on a demo and, I think Tucker was still pretty new to drums even when the first demos were coming out, but it was, he was one of those people who, um, Tucker's a worker. Like he's a, that guy knows how to work. And, uh, it was always fun watching Thursday cause they, the drums just got better and better and better with every single release. And then by like record number three, Tucker's just like, wow, this guy's a total banger, you know, and as good as anybody yeah. in the business, you know, at this point. So yeah, it's nice. Uh, Tucker's a local boy too. He's from, you know, the other Thursday dudes are from like 
North Jersey, like proper North North Jersey for someone like me, that might as well be Maine, you know, like we mm-hmm. don't pay attention to that part of New Jersey. <laughs> right. It's like us in Northern Maine. Yeah. yeah, Tucker's a proper Central Jersey boy. He's he's out by me. So extra respect for that. Nice. So you're a lifelong, is it, how, how would you say New Jerseyan? How, what's someone from New Jersey called? New Jerseyan? That's accurate. New Jerseyan. Yeah. So we need you to settle something for us. So we're Ooh. all from the Northeast. We're from Maine. But one of my best friends is from New Jersey. He's from the Morristown area, so he's you know he's really slumming it, <laughs> right? And he has an uncle that bleeds New Jersey, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. struggle not to laugh when I say this, but it's a true story. <laughs> okay, great story. He bleeds New Jersey so much that when he's out of state driving, and Bruce Springsteen or Bon Jovi comes on the radio, <laughs> he immediately pulls over gets out of the car and salutes in the direction of New Jersey. <laughs> so my question to you is, is this a thing or is this dude fucking nuts? Uh, I'm not going to go ahead and call him nuts, but this is a first. Okay. okay I've never, it's not a thing. <laughs> that is not a thing. Not a thing. I've never heard about someone like getting out and saluting, <laughs> but heading east towards Mecca when they hear Bon Jovi. But yeah, it's, it's excessive. But uh, but respect, you know, I do appreciate that. What about the other? I mean, it's kind of small company, though. Does he do it for for, for lifetime? lifetime? I was just going to say, yeah, for lifetime. Lifetime. <laughs> does he do it for Red Man? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think the dude's like seventy, so I don't think there's much like E Town Concrete in his background. <laughs> well, Sinatra, you know, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. But no, that's not a that's yeah that that doesn't like. No, that doesn't come with the the normal culture of uh, of of New Jersey. I've never seen that one before. Probably good. It's probably good. Yeah. I, I like it. I love the hometown pride or the home state pride. I mean, we all the three of us being from Maine, we we take great pride in being Mainers. But sure, uh, I'm not. You know, I'm not. Every time I see an L.O. Bean boot, I'm not turning and saluting <laughs> towards Maine. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think too. I mean, like, you know, I came up in like the punk and hardcore scene. So there was a lot of years where I just blanked, like rejected things like that and rejected, uh, you know, any, especially something like Bon Jovi was like over the top mainstream rock. So I spent a good 10 years of my life being like too self-righteous for anything like that, you know? And honestly, with with the Bruce thing, it was always like this. He was like a presence that was always in your life, like an ex-president or something, like Ronald Reagan. It was just like a name, like bigger than life. And I never really knew anything but the hits until I met Fallon and like started getting down. And he was such a Brucey. And we started, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it on a different level now. But prior to that, yeah, it wasn't like uh, an integrated thing into my life. Neither of my parents were into it, so. Well, that's that's kind of a good place to start, and you've probably done this before. But um, for our listeners, what, what were you listening to early on? What what was the the stuff that kind of got you into music and excited about that? I mean, I think like besides for just kind of getting into some random pop music and stuff at first, I really got into cock rock. Uh, like I was a proper fan of like Skid Row, Motley Crue, yeah, Van Halen at the time, and I think that is maybe what started leaning me towards heavy music. And then my mom was a big uh, hard rock fan. 
Zeppelin, Queen, The Who. So my ears started tending that way. And then I was, uh, I was 11 when Nevermind came out and when the Black album came out. And I'd say those, those two records, I think, were like the first ones where it was like maybe um, they were mine. You right. know, they were Absolutely. the first ones where yep. I'm like, I'm into heavy music and these are made for me and these are mine. And I really gravitated towards it. I was a huge Metallica head and a huge Nirvana fan. And then always like the through line through all of that was always Led Zeppelin, who is mm -hmm. still probably my favorite band now nice. uh, and has lasted the test of time like that. But yeah, I think those those were the uh, the the early beginnings. And then I had one other influence which was my father who you know he's born and raised in the bronx and you know teacher in harlem and and he was and he's actually a jazz flute player oh wow and was really heavy into like jazz and then like 60s uh soul and motown and stuff like that and so there was always like that going on in his in his section of uh of the house so that that was definitely an early influence too Interesting. Yeah. To unpack it a little bit, there's a lot of bands you're mentioning and I'm just thinking like, I'm almost trying to live it through your lens. Like, you know, you have like your parents' music and then like the music you came up with, like, you know, we talk about it on here. Like, you know, the music we came up with is different from our parents. You kind of find that intersection and that's your sweet spot. So we're right. 80s guys here. Um, 90s was kind of our jam because we were born in the 80s. It's always like a decade following. So that's right. with that said, was it that those are the bands that kind of like got you to that crossroads. You're like, I think this is something I want to pursue as a career path. I wouldn't say that. No, I mean, no. the drums, the drums kind of came separately. Um, they came a little before that. And I gravitated towards uh, the drum set. And my, my mom was working a second job as a manicurist uh, at night and she had befriended like a couple of the women she worked with there. And I was already starting to gravitate towards music. And she brought me to meet up one of her friends in Somerville. And I walk into this room and there's just this giant drum set with like a bunch of records behind it and stuff. And it turned out this woman's boyfriend, Tommy, was like a local rock drummer. And I was real stoked on it. Like I saw the kit and something like, you know, I gravitated towards it and I got to fuck around a little. And uh, eventually we started going there like weekly for a while. And my mom would just chill in the kitchen and like drink tea and smoke cigarettes with her friend. And Tommy would like teach me random rock and roll songs. Um, he, he yeah, he wasn't trained. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really either. I can't really read. So he would just like play along to a song and have me sit down and attempt to play it and teach me some stuff. And that was like my introduction to the drum set was literally like via rock music, you know? And that's, I think one of the reasons why I'm so uh, happily pigeonholed as a player, like I, I'm like very happily a rock and roll drummer, you know? And I think it's because like I learned how to play drums inside of like rock and roll songs. And even when I practice now, you know, like, uh, like just as an example, I, you know, I fell in love with the new turnstile record as mm -hmm. you know, everyone in the world did. And the, and the first thing I want to do is learn it on drums, you know, and like, nice. I know that whole record front to back on drums now, cause I just was really enjoying it. And then a fun way to play it for me is like to play it on drums. So I think to answer a 
the long question. I think uh, th that was like my connection into actually playing. And I certainly didn't see it as a career. I mean, like at that age, right? <laughs> yeah. And the scope, especially, you know, I started playing in these like punk, punk bands and hardcore bands were like, still at the time there, there was a pretty serious limit on what was even possible with music like that. You know, the level of success that you could achieve wasn't like financial or societal, you know what I mean? Right. Like, it was like sick of level. it all. Like that yeah, was the, like, that was the, like the apex of what you could possibly be. And I had no idea what it was like to be in sick of it all. So, <laughs> yeah. So actually at that time, I was much more focused on a, being a promoter. I had gotten into booking and promoting like punk and hardcore shows in Jersey. And if you asked me from like, you know, 13 to probably like 17, I would have told you I was going to be like a promoter and I wanted to like open a club in New Brunswick. Like, and, and a lot of the times, like my shows were just the vehicles to like get my bands on shows, you know? Nice. Of course. Yeah. 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 And we've seen mm -hmm. the flyers, like the brothers keeper despair at Manville Elks and all that. Oh yeah. And that was you know, a good one. heard you on uh, other podcasts and stuff. Do you think that was like your formal introduction into the music industry or do you think it more came from the creative side on the drum side? I think I got both luckily, you know, like, like I did get that taste of like the business side and an artist like early on where I learned there was a balance and like a give and take. And like, I, I maybe an example of that is like when I was heavily doing shows, of course I get hit up a lot by bands who have nothing to offer me. You know what I mean? Like, How are you getting hit yeah. up? Because this is 95, you're 15. <laughs> like this is my my mom's phone number. It was <laughs> it was pasted on wow. ev every one of those Manville Elks flyers you see, that 908 number was my the number at my mom's apartment. I'm gonna prank it's call amazing. It. <laughs> yeah. And uh yeah, I wonder what would happen actually. Um <laughs> and what was funny about that is like, you know, I would take these calls and Back in the you know early mid nineties, like that was when long distance still cost a lot of fucking oh, money. That's right. <laughs> um, oh my god! And, you know, and I'm trying to call people like all over the country, and you know they're calling me back, and I got my ass fucking handed to me <laughs> about a about a phone bill. I hadn't even realized I racked up like a hundred bucks or something, and it was bad. It like it was like the second wow. coming. So my buddy Evan, who was tech savvy and a little shady uh they figured out how to convert the radio shack pocket organizers into phone dialers wow so so it had three buttons on it that would mock uh nickel diamond quarter sounds because that's how the phone actually operated it didn't actually wow. your money it was like a noise thing you would dial yeah. the number and then, uh, you know, the opera would be like 225, please. And then you put <laughs> the organizer up to the dial and you go. Oh, man, that's so good. You know, that's and amazing. pretend like you're putting quarter, you know, you mix a couple dimes in and nickels just to make it seem like, you know, every <laughs> once in a while you got caught, like someone would be like, mm -mm, next time, honey, next time or something. Like, <laughs> but, but it worked all the time. So I had a beeper. And I would like get pages or have someone just leave a message. And then, yeah, like one of my, I would go to this quick check, like not far from my mom's apartment and sit in a phone booth with my little notebook and book shows. That's that, amazing. 
That's so cool. Like we all have that that friend Evan that you just described. We we oh, all know that. We all know that. You guy. Need Evan. You needed him. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And like that's a grind right there. That is hustling. I love that. Yep. Evan's a Bitcoin billionaire right now. Evan, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about it. Evan's got a great life, so I'll talk about him. He actually got his master's in economics, went to Wall Street, was like a compliance officer, was like, fuck that, took his money, like traveled the world for a year and wound up in Miami and is now a wedding photographer. Wow. wow. And a very successful, of course, he's yeah. like, like a very successful wedding photographer because that's what he does. Evan's a pimp. Love <laughs> that guy. Because that like 15-year-old hustle doesn't stop at 15. It just, it's a, oh, no, it no, extends no, no. to that's, a different medium, you know? That's in your heart. Yeah. That's in that's your heart. that's pre-internet. Like how the hell do you, <laughs> he must have had yeah. an older brother or something that taught him it. Yeah, he's, he was just savvy like that. Um, but you're right. I do truly believe in that. Some people got the hustle. Some people got that like, that kind of like work or driving them and some people just don't, you know, just oh. can't teach it. So that, so I'm just picturing like, cause you're on the East coast. So you're probably booking some West coast bands. So they're three hours behind you. So you're probably getting like hit up at 10 at night, Benny, we got another call. We got another call. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it was like, um, it, it, you know, it's a long, it's an extremely long story and a complicated relationship with my mom, but it was just me and her. We were in this apartment together. And honestly, we were really like more friends at that point than a son and a mom in a lot of ways. So there was like, you know, for a lot of the things that were lacking as a kid in that environment, there were upsides, which were she didn't give a shit, you know, um, <laughs> like I could get a call from someone late. And actually the day of shows, you know, this is pre- MapQuest pre-Google Maps. So you actually, every flyer had directions on it. And if it didn't have directions on it, it had to have a number. So the day of a show, especially a big one, my mom would plant up at the phone <laughs> oh, wow. and I would write down like directions from points east, north, south, like, and you know, the person would be like, oh yeah, I'm coming from like Philly. And then my mom <laughs> would have these directions to like give to wow. him. Yeah. And my favorite story about that was I got a call once uh from the get up kids to do a show like when they were still i think on the seven inch you know pretty small and they left a message and it said matt Pryor from the ghetto kids <laughs> and i was like oh that's so funny and i got on the phone to matt Pryor. i'm like guess what my mom wrote the message she said the ghetto kids oh, i thought it was great he didn't care <laughs> didn't care it's almost a better band name too. Get a book. Honestly, still bums, still bums me out that he didn't care. I don't like that. That was like, wait, let me think. Almost 25 years ago. I'm yeah. still bummed out that he didn't care about that. It was funny. Matt Pryor. That's so I love good. that. I mean, you got your mom in on the hustle too. That's, that's cool. I think she appreciated my hustle in some ways, you know? And, and at that time, I think she was super appreciative of like, this was a fairly positive thing I was doing and it was real easy for me to go the other way at that time. So yeah, yeah. I think she was supportive of that. It's still music. It was, you know, it was positive. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, that's the thing. Like you're, you're putting these shows on, like you said, to, to obviously to hustle a little bit, you you're into it. You liked it. You maybe thought you wanted to be a promoter, but you're also playing music and you're playing on these shows too. So that that's gotta be kind of how you got into doing that. But like, how did you guys, 
you weren't the Gaslight Anthem at first. A lot of the guys were together, but how did the Gaslight Anthem kind of come about out of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that happened as a culmination, like, you know, from the time we are talking, you know, I, I was doing shows heavily, probably like the heaviest from, you know, 95 to like 99. I didn't even meet Brian until 2005. Oh, well. Right on. Yeah. So, but, you know, ironically, we were both kind of, hustling in the same scene you know brian was in north jersey he had a lot of different bands he did uh like moose lodge shows up in the town he was in and stuff and i was doing it down there so i think that was one of the serendipitous things of when brian and i kind of found each other was like i think we were both used to carrying all the weight in our bands and then we found like someone else who was uh could carry some weight and we were both like pretty relieved but at the time I met Brian, I was playing my band, The Killing Gift, had pretty much broken up. And Alex Rosamelia was in The Killing Gift with me from Gaslight. And we were doing a stoner metal band called Spiro Agnew, which actually existed quite a few years, like through Gaslight. Uh, and then I was just doing some random other stuff. I was roadieing. I was like touring with other bands, trying out, like basically anything that would get me on tour. I was kind of in like a little bit of like a last ditch effort part of my life to get something with music like serious and going because I had had a couple serious like teases that gave me like a taste of what it could be. And then, you know, and then people would quit or a label would back out and there was all these like, you know, close but no cigar kind of situations. And so uh, a mutual friend, uh, Jay Small, was and his wife at the time, uh, Jane, were running a label called XOXO Records who had signed uh, Brian's band, This Charming Man. And I guess Brian had gone on tour with This Charming Man. It didn't go so well and basically fired the whole band, brought in his brother-in-law, Alex, who was like 17 at the time and then was kind of restarting the whole thing. And that's when they can... Jay and Jane connected Brian and I, and he sent me, you know, the, this charming man record. And we talked and, you know, I was still like more heavily into like pretty punk and hardcore stuff at the time. So, but, but one thing was becoming clear to me was especially in my band, the low end theory, a lot of the reviews of that band and stuff, a lot of bands at the time, I guess it was, um, you know, the music's great and the, the vocals are lacking, you know? And yep. at some point, and maybe this is where doing shows for a long time came in handy for me just with uh, the intuition, I guess, about the music business was like, I knew like if I wanted to do this, I need someone who writes songs, you know? Like, I was like, I'm a fucking drummer. I'm not Tommy Lee, you know what I mean? And even Tommy Lee needed Vince Neil to wear his fucking Speedos, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. like I knew... I love rock and roll and I knew the narrative and I knew the narrative could not just be me, you know? And I, and I was actively looking for like people who, who were good and inspiring and could actually write songs. So Brian, like, it was almost like he like fell in my lap, which was crazy, you know? And even though I, the music was maybe like too mid tempo for me at the time, I was like, Oh wow. Like there's like, there's hooks in here. Like there's like mm-hmm. choruses, there's like real shit that none of my friends know how to write, you know? Yep. And it drew me to it. 
so I just went and uh, drove up to, you know, a, this rented house they had up in North Jersey where like Brian and his wife and Alex and his family, everyone is living in the same house. And yeah, I went up there to practice. And it's funny to think now, I even left that first practice like, yeah, let me think about it. Oh, wow. um, and didn't even <laughs> right? say, yeah, like, such a dick. And <laughs> yeah, and then like, I remember I was at a, it's a weird memory, I guess one of those flashbulb memories because it's an important moment, but uh, Andy Diamond, who everybody met later on through the years via Gaslight, you know, he's an old friend of mine from New Brunswick and him and his boys used to do a kind of drunken yearly Labor Day softball game at Johnson Park in New Brunswick. And uh, I remember I, I called Brian been said, yes, I'll be in the band at that drunken Labor Day softball nice. game nice. where I think I was in an air cast <laughs> and Andy Diamond still gives me shit about missing this foul ball. He's like, I know you had a bum wheel kid, but you should have <laughs> gotten to that ball. You know, he still gives me grief about that. There's no what way position? I could have got. I was, playing, playing? I was playing third in that game. That's tough. Yeah. The hot corner, man. That's I tough. know. With, a, with an air cast. Gee. <laughs> you got to stick you at first base or right field. I Listen, I was hitting dingers that day. He, <laughs> this is all he remembers. He's like, I know you had a bad wheel, kid, but you should have got <laughs> But yeah, so that's how I started playing with, with Brian. And then it stayed this charming man for a while. And we had the uh, old guitar player, Mike Volpe. And we went in to record um, the the first record that was going to be on Eyeball Records. It was kind of like an updraft to Eyeball. And the session just like didn't go well. We weren't really ready for it. It was a little, you know, too pro already. And Brian was kind of given the option right off the bat of, uh, you know, you could keep your record deal and fire the band and we'll get like pros, you know, <laughs> or like you can stick with that. And he decided to stick with the band and, and find her own thing. And Jay from XOXO was like, Hey, I'll still put out your record, just sort everything out. So, you know, we ended up doing a quick, uh, we did a tour with um, an artist called the fever few who was on eyeball. And during that tour, you know, Mike Volpe, the guitar player was kind of, he was in and out of um, knowing if it was going to be for him, you know, uh, right. and kind of quickly, it seemed like that life wasn't for him, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know what he would say about that, but that was my perspective on it. And, and yeah. And then uh, we ended up, I was like, listen, I'm like, I know a dude who's like amazing at guitar and is just up for fucking anything. Um, and that was Alex Rosamilia. And I was like, you, well, like, let's get him in the thing, you know? And then once we got Alex and started writing songs, that's when we had a chance to change the name. And we did the Sink or Swing demo, which was uh, what we came to dance and drive uh, Navisync maybe and did that. And we're kicking it around the, uh, I was touring with other bands and like roadieing and stuff, throwing that demo around like in the U S and then, yeah, then we put out the record and that's kind of, you know, I love that. Uh, you, you like personally, it sounds like you had almost like a graduation phase with music where I'm sure those early bands were just either people, you knew it's like, all right, my buddy, he plays bass. So you just slap a bunch of dudes together <laughs> where at this stage you're like, well now we need a song, you know, songwriter. You've, you've kind of done the local thing. 
I saw on Twitter you you roadied for Nora, which is awesome. And it's probably like <laughs> Loser's Intuition era, it sounds like. And uh, uh, yeah, now you're at a point where you're like, all right, well, maybe I don't want to do that anymore. Maybe you want to level up. Is that about right? I mean, honestly, it was what was presented to me, like what was offered to me. It was, I, I think at the time, I don't know when that part of it happened, but, you know, it was, and I guess I know more about that about myself now than I did then. I think I was just like, I was just cruising then. I was surviving. I was like, I didn't come from like through this whole period, you know, I'm working full time. I'm like, you know, I, I didn't live at home and I'm paying rent this whole time. And it's like, it was hard, you know, like a lot of these years weren't easy trying to get by. So I, I think I really wanted to to work hard and make myself necessary in the music business somehow, you know, but I think I, at that time I'd already fell in love with creating songs and creating albums, which like now I realize, like, as I get older, like I really feel empty without that. Yeah. And wow. I think the pandemic taught me that in, in a way too, like just the, the creation of songs and the finishing of songs and the tooling of them and recording and, getting albums together and getting the flow together and just the artistry of the whole thing. I fucking love it. And that part of it, I think at some point I realized even when I was starting gaslight and stuff, I did realize at that time, if this works out, if this doesn't work out, I'm always going to play music and I'm always going to write records with people. And I'm always going to be in a band. I just got to make the decision if I can do that for my life or not. Cause like my life was like getting fucking hard and I was having some other opportunities that I could have taken actually Oh wow! that I denied to like kind of do gaslight and you know, obviously panned out luckily. Yeah. Yep. It's got made fun of for, I got made fun of for it too. (laughs) Then you did something right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, man, that's the ultimate context in terms of what it takes to get to that point. Like, okay. I've met the people I want to be in a band with. I found the people that are kind of supplementing my talent. You know, next we're a band and we've felt each other out. But at this point, like we got to start playing shows. Like this is where the magic happens. We got to start playing gigs. Was there like a anticipation for that first gig where it's like, shit, you know, this is it. And we got to make it work now. So we got to actually go out and perform. Right. Well, I think the world needs to hear this, right? The world, this is legit. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the the years really helped in in two ways the first was i had spent years and years and years like playing people my music and waiting like with bated breath for their reaction you know what i mean like sitting on the edge of my like watching people's uh, face react to my music you know like yeah and the one thing that was really clear especially after we did the sink or swim demo the reactions were different you know, it was like, it was like the first time I felt like people didn't want to just help like their friend Benny that they really liked. They like really liked it and were like genuinely excited about it in a different way. So I think, I think Brian and I both had that intuition that like what we had going was like maybe, maybe different and maybe like special, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, we were both like, uh, 
we had just, we knew tons of fucking people by then because we were like old and played a million shows. Yep. So when it came time to like booking an East coast tour, I was like, like East coast tour. Sure. Yeah. Like I could do those. You know, I got, I'll call this person here. I'll call this person here. We got this, we got this. So like, and that's where doing shows helped a lot too, because yeah. I had a Rolodex of like 10 years of people who kind of thought they owed me a favor. Cause that's what it was back in the day. It was like, you play my town, you know, when you come to Columbus, you got a place to play. You got a, you got a house to stay at, totally. make you some pasta, you know, like there, there was that element of it. And so I do think like I fed punk rock and you know, the alternative scene for years and then got fed by its altruism for the couple years you know, when Gaslight started, it helped. I could totally see that. Far from the days of people calling your, your home phone, you know, but it paid <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> calling my well, mom. That grind. I mean, it definitely paid off. Uh, it's, we were kind of putting this together and how the questions we wanted to ask you. And this one kind of piqued my interest and it's around this time for you guys. You put out the, the, the first record on uh, XOXO and absolute punk kind of, early adopters, uh, those kind of independent publications that end up kind of being tastemakers were on board early. And yeah. was that something you guys were looking to send stuff to, or did they just hear it and love it? How, how did that stuff come about? Cause I know on a way smaller scale for us, we're trying to get any person to listen and we we're <laughs> right. throwing it to everybody as an indie and you just want to get some traction somewhere. Is that something you guys were thinking of too? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I think we were definitely making sure that like people in those places were hearing the record. Absolute Punk, I think, is that dude Jason. Um, yep. He was all over it. Like, I don't think we ever sent him anything. He was just like stoked, and we had this like mutually cool relationship from the get. Like, we were nice. just we were just really stoked that he liked it and was you know posting this nice stuff about it. Yeah, yeah, that one was like that. And then at Punk News, our good buddy, like Chris Moran, was one of the first kind of allies we had out there. He was um, in Richmond. He did shows down there, and he was kind of tied into a bunch of the people down there. And he actually took a lot of our early, like, any early video footage and stuff was done by Chris. And he was, like, the video guy for Punk News. So we kind of had, like, the direct thing there. And, yeah, and we just got lucky at the time. I don't know what it was, but there was something about the timing of when that record came out and what was going on and punk that people just seemed like, yeah, they're pretty receptive to it right off the bat. You know, that that's kind of, totally. it, it's, it's kind of the early days of that becoming where people went to find out about music. I mean, oh, dude, I know what happened was like, that was yeah. like, the sh yeah. If you didn't get a good review on punk news, it was like, fuck, we're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? Right. Like, yeah. And it's like we where we grew up, I mean, you're only a couple years older than we are. Where we grew up, there wasn't that. It was Rolling Stone. If you weren't in Rolling Stone or you weren't, you know, you got nothing. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Or your local radio station wasn't, you know, trying to pick up somebody local that yeah. you weren't getting any any traction. Now Back to the mill for you, kid. Exactly. Yeah. And now people can get traction, you know, at this time because you know, somebody on the West Coast hears it over the internet and they're like, I love this. Yeah. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely true. That's, I guess, 
in hindsight, that was really the beginning of that, you know, and arguably the death of the local scene. That's a, it's a bigger mm. conversation. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but that's a kind of like an even playing field at that point. Oh, six. It's right before the iPhone drops. And there's the kind of like that, I don't know, indie promotion engine that's working in tandem yeah. with, you know, bands that are kind of coming up at that time. It's just, I mean, that's a sweet spot. We all lived it. We all know it. But to go along with it, the promo engine is definitely what we were talking about earlier that, you know, the live shows, the whole touring aspect. At this point, you're touring with bands like Against Me, which are also on the come up. Uh, any highlights that come up for you locally? I mean, local shows are popping off. You're adding to festivals. Like, I mean, we just we want to hear from your perspective, just like what was going on in that that era for you personally. The against me thing was big for us. Yeah. Um, just like our ties to the band in general. So early on, um, a guy named Ryan Duffy and uh, the other guy's name's escaping me. I'll, I'll remember it later. They they were working for Vice at the time. Nice. And uh, and this is where, in a weird way, like, you know, the the technology um helped gaslight, but also because every album leaked. Oh shit. Yeah. And it was actually like super good for us in hindsight, like sink or swim leaked like way before it was out. And Ryan and the the other dude from vice had heard it and they put us on a a show at Siberia, which was like a little bar in Manhattan with against me um, opening for against me. And that was, that was really early on and we played well. And that basically got us connected into like against me world and um sweet that's why sabbat uh productions put out the senor and the queen ep and it also probably got us on that new wave tour which was like the first like major tour we ever got asked to do so the ties to against me were really big in the those early shows with them but if if there's like a standout show i mean there is a bunch like that was the thing about I mean, our scope early on was was small. I mean, I know I've said this in other interviews, but Brian and I literally had like a pact with each other that if we sold 10,000 records, we were going to get throat tattoos. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't see a throat tattoo, but you yeah, definitely sold that. In, many, our, uh... in our estimation, like if you sold 10,000 records, like you were done, like you were a musician for life, you know, <laughs> yeah. like that we really thought that. So every step of our like progression felt so fucking good. Like the first time, like people sung, sung along at a local show. It felt that fucking good. Like the first time we sold like a hundred dollars in merch, it felt that fucking good, you know? And there was all these like culminations and every time it was like, you know, I think again, I I know I've referenced it a bunch of time, but that's where I think all those years we had put in, gave us perspective, you know, where like we were out there grinding and doing the thing, but knew that like, it was, it was special and cool. But if I think there, if there was one show and I think you brought it up, Nate was the, the fest. I think that was the first time we were like, wait a minute, like this is getting crazy. Cause we had been playing small DIY shows, like all around East coast and Midwest but, you know, we, we weren't playing to more than, you know, 20, 30, 40 people at any of these shows, really. And there were some kids who were stoked, but they weren't like big shows. And then I think at Fest was like the first time that like a bunch of these people like came together in one place. 
and the, like all these friends bands we knew like the riot before and fake problems were like all hanging out and that show just like went off and i think that was the first time where we like started maybe to imagine ourselves as being in like the next level you know i can see that it's like doing a local farmer's market and then you're doing a farmer's market in like a different state you're like oh shit. yeah we're legit oh, they love our honey <laughs> they love yeah. our salsa wow we, got, we have something here fruit fair fair trade rock and roll yeah nice <laughs> is it hard to be as an opener to get excited about the show like are you excited to be on the show or you're like eh, we're still the opener we get six songs you know is it and I guess just having the backdrop of how big you guys got, it's almost hard to picture you that, but I'm curious from your perspective, you know, is there any inkling like some nights just to be like, fuck this, we're playing nine songs. Fuck the opener. We're playing 10 songs. No, never that. And I think that's where like having four people who really understood a good, like working class value being in the same band really helped. We, it was, it's a fucking job. And we always saw it like that. And the people who are the headliners are hiring you to do something, yep. you know, and you're being hired to fill this amount of time. And like, and that's what you'll do. And you'll show up on time and you won't be a fucking pain in the ass. Like that was important to us to, to be good workers, I guess, in that sense. But as far as playing, we were really competitive. Yeah. You know, like that, that's fueled a lot of it. Like, yeah, I respect against me. I respect Rise Against and all these bands, but I want to be fucking better than them. Right. You 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 just answered a question I've wanted to ask every guest. Like, yep. Are bands competitive? You know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes, of course. I think though, like, I think just like in sports or something, you know, the really successful people understand that like all boats come up in the rising tide. You know, so, so don't, you know, not competitive to the point that you're knocking anybody else down, you know, but like, does every band on a five band bill want to be the best band of the night? Yeah. yeah. And, and do you want to be the band that everyone's going online after being like, yeah, it was a good show, but that band fucking ripped. Yeah, of course you <laughs> do. Like, like, I don't know. Um, and I was always driven by that. I remember we got on that new wave tour with against me and they were fucking firing on all cylinders in those days. Like their show with like Andrew in the middle of the stage still. And like, Oh my God, it was a fucking powerhouse show. And we played our first show and we played it the way we knew how to play shows at that time. You know, we played like two songs, we tuned, you know, play another two songs. Maybe Brian talks a little like, and then we watched the first night we saw Against Me play just, I think, like 15, 16 songs without a stop. Wow. Like, yeah, yeah. Damn. It's like roller coaster this show, and it's so intense. And we're like, oh, okay. Like, we got to be way better. And, like, and, and we learned that. You know, you have 30 minutes before a show. Shut the fuck up like fire as many songs in that 30 minutes, like burn your fucking time, you know? And like, you're done working at like seven 30 at night. So that's, <laughs> you know, just, you gotta put it, you gotta put it in. Yeah. I love the competitiveness because it's, you, you can't really get anywhere if you're not 
right. measuring yourself against your competition. And, and like you said, you don't need to yeah. tear them down. You just need to say, okay, they're doing this. We need to do that. At least that, if yeah. not more to be, to be taken seriously. So that's, I, I definitely feel that. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I guess it's, it's the same thing as like, Michael Jordan getting beat by Larry Bird, you know, like a million mm -hmm. times. And then, you know, yeah, he hates Larry Bird, but he then took like two parts of his game and got better, you know, like, so that's what it is. You got to, got to take, I mean, it's, we're all stealing the tricks from the masters. You, know? you have to, <laughs> they're the masters for a reason. You have yeah, like, it's just, you got to just get, get steal from the cream, you know? Yeah, it's all for the love of the game because you were, like you said, those roadie days. Like you probably saw shows that you were like, hmm, that could have been better. You know, you, you take yeah. notes. Yeah, sure. And I and I hated watching a band like... Bomb. Yeah, or like mm -hmm. just check out of the show, you know, or like totally. not want to yep. be there or something. Like I always felt I knew so many people like back in New Brunswick that would have fucking killed to be on this tour, you know? Like, like if you don't want to be here, I know... A hundred people back home who will take your fucking job. Trust me. Like, you know, a hundred percent. And it kills, I think it kills you. It kills me. It kills any fan or band or Brody to see that because it's, it's a limited engagement. You're like, man, you don't, do you not realize that everyone knows that you don't give a shit? Like we yeah. all see it, <laughs> <Right>. you know? <laughs> and that's where there is like a general exchange, like, yeah. you know, that has to happen. And I remember Brian and I had this conversation fairly deeply because if Brian used to have like a certain type of show, like where he wasn't feeling great or so I would get on him, you know? And I'd be like, yo, like, what the fuck? Like we're here. We got to do everyone. Like it's, and I, and you know, there became a point where he's like, you know, what do you do when you have like an awful day? And I'm like, I put my hair in front of my face and just fucking do my job. You know, he's like, you know, I got a microphone. I'm like, I got, I got to talk to these people. I got to like pretend. And I'm like, oh mm. yeah, that's like, that's true. It's true. You know? So there did come where like, it's like, what is the bare minimum that people are paying for a ticket and they're paying for your music delivered well. And like, you don't have to be like a showman every night. Like that's not part of the ticket price, but you have to deliver the goods. Well, that's part of the ticket price, you know? Yeah. And I think we always like felt that like, just, you know, people are paying to be here. Like, that's a I good appreciate point. that, you know? That's a good point. It's like going to like a five-star restaurant. The service sucked, but the food was so fucking, the, the food was so, the food was so fucking good. You're like, it's all good. It's all I'll set. Still, because I'll still, I'll try it again. I'll come yeah. back. Yeah. I'll try it yeah. again. I won't tip like well, a, but I'll come back. Right. It's like a Bob, and I remember Bob Dylan kind of being my reference for that because he's famously someone who you'll go see play a fucking terrible show like he'll, oh, yeah. tank, he'll tank shows all the time but then i've seen it yeah and then but then you'll catch like these nights where it's fucking bob dylan you know and i i kind of like that i and i like as the years have gone on i want someone who's a singer for me or someone who's presenting themselves to the audience to be to be honest and real and like it's i get bored when i see the robotic shows who are just mm -hmm changing only city names you know and i and i've seen it and it's right. it's okay and they play powerhouse tight shows every night but you never get like magic you know and i i do think like sometimes you gotta like play some shit shows and like go through the mud a little to get like magic shows you know mm -hmm. yep 
so like th- at this time this era where it's like right approaching the sidewind dummy days i think that's when i personally like started to get a buzz about you guys up here in maine and i'm just curious so 59 sound and american slang both came out on sidewind dummy what drew you to them i mean when me personally when i think sidewind dummy i think seven seconds i think kill your idols i think well now like title fight that was after that but like why them and why you guys well i mean if i'm honest um at the time we could assign to like any number of like the bigger indie labels like that i bet and you know there was a lot of things to weigh i think the cool thing with side one was I loved, like, I, I still love Joseph and Bill. Like, those guys are just, like, warm, cool people who I enjoyed being around. But they also presented kind of this model to us, which was always what we strived, which was how can we be a successful band without all the mainstream stuff? Yeah. You know, like, how can we do it without... And, like a band like Floggy Molly was like a pretty good example of that, of like, you know, how big a band can get without any mainstream love really at all. So I think that being part of their thing was a big part of it. And, and then there was like an ease to it. Like the first time we met him, Joe Sib was fucking breaking down my drums. I remember, and I remember like thinking like, Cause he's a total spaz of a dude. I don't think he'd be mad if I said that. And he, he <laughs> went and saw us at a show in San Diego. And I remember him talk and we were bad that night, which was funny too. And I remember him being outside and just like talking a mile a minute and just breaking down my drums with me. And I'm like, and I got the keen sense. I'm like, I don't think this guy's trying to impress me. This I don't even him. think he knows he's breaking down drums right now. Like, you know, cause he was just like hyped up and, you know, we went to their office and there's just like tacos and I don't know, it was just mellow and it just felt right, you know? And they also had a very interesting um, model for Europe that none of the other labels had where essentially all the other labels were trying to do like their record label in Europe and have this like broad European thing Side One Dummy uh, had this uh, method of licensing the record to each individual country. Oh, wow. So, so it was like we were technically on a different label sort of in each country in Europe with the album being licensed to them. But that actually like made people really work the record like a lot more. Um, and a lot more diligently. And there's a guy named Thomas Drew who still works at Side One, who's kind of like the mastermind of that thing. And it was, it was a really good idea, and it really worked out well because, yeah, we we did really well in Europe, like right off the bat. I mean, you're not kidding about flogging Molly. There, they played Maine a couple summers ago, I think, to gigantic several thousand people. When there are bigger bands that don't pull those numbers up here. I know. I wish Brian played the Irish card more, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, when you mentioned Flying Molly, I'm like, there's a connection, the connotation to the Irish culture. Like, there's a turnout no matter what. No matter what. I know. I know. And there's such a great band and not like bro-y and jockey like a fucking St. Paddy's Day parade at all, you know? (laughs) But, but. If Brian fucking wore a green shirt every once in a while, <laughs> it wouldn't hurt. Right? <laughs> I'm just saying, just saying, open up another demo there, you know? 
Love it. I don't want to play St. Patty's Day Parade. So, oh, no, no. Rough. For, the, for the rest of eternity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not in my 40s. Playing those or getting the this I One Dummy stuff, hearing that the record is licensed to different labels in Europe. I, I We've kind of like talked about that in other capacities, I think with merch and stuff before, but never heard about it with records. And I mean, obviously that's probably where it started. And that makes so much sense to me. And it does kind of fit like, okay, now this one label is, you know, really hitting, hitting the road for us in Ireland. And this one label is really hitting the road for us in Germany. And that's kind of yeah. cool to, to like, they're like, if they like the record, that's going to, you're going to have all these different people working for you that aren't just one label. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of that relationship is like finding people who do have just like a personal stake and a personal investment in what you're doing, you know? Yeah. It's so important when you have, cause you know, these labels all have PR people and all these people like making calls on your behalf. And it's pretty obvious when someone's really stoked about something or is just giving you the rundown, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a person, like you said, the personal connection. Like I always compare it to like wine and spirits. Like you have like the macro, like huge distributors, and then you have the ankle biters, but the ankle biters, no one really knows this, but the fringe benefit is the fact that like people actually care. Like they're there, like the, they're right, actual right. fans. They buy the product out of, you know, out of pocket. So, yeah. you know, with that said, like, this is definitely like a cha- like a turning point for the band. Like a lot of things are changing. You're seeing yourself in press, which, you know, roadie days, you're like, man, I never thought it'd be in a magazine, right? <laughs> um, yeah. More people are coming out to the shows and whatnot, starting to headline shows. Is this just like a, just a crazy vortex for you at this, at this moment? Yeah. I mean, I think it is, it is. I mean, cause a lot of those years, I mean, we were really like touring like eight, nine months out of the year, like just tour to tour to tour. And like, so to say, I really had like my head on straight and was grasping every detail at the time. I mean, even, you know, there was a two year span in here where I didn't even keep a, I was basically, I was homeless because I didn't keep a place at home because I was gone so much and I would sleep in like a motel when I was back. And so it was like, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a tornado. And I do think, you know, one thing Gaslight was always had, which, you know, maybe is um, an emotional deficiency, but a professional act, you know, good thing is that we like really were never impressed with anything. And, you know, we were never like getting off stage and be like, yeah, fuck yeah, that was a ripper, bro. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. or like, or like, yo, this fucking record's going to smoke. Like, it's never about that. We, like, never rested on our laurels. And, you know, honestly, before a record was even pressed, we were usually already thinking, like, all right, that one's done. Like, it's fine. Like, what what are we doing next? You know, and I do think it really helped Gaslight because we had such a, a prolific, like, eight years there where it was just, like, boom, boom, you know, where we were really... And I'm glad we did because you know, when bands find that sweet spot, they should put out as much as possible in that time when it's, when it's riding like that. But if there's one regret I have about that time, it was just like not keeping my eyes down enough. Like my eyes are just forward all the time, you know, like what's next, what do we got to take care of? What's, you know, it was always like, I don't know. I don't know if I was always enjoying moments, you know, (laughs) like, 
I mean, you hear we're Patriots fans up here in the Northeast. You hear, you always heard that from Belichick. It's like, all right, cool, we won today, but on to the next one. Like, (laughs) as as a Giants fan, I'm the only person who can big time you and all you. uh, Yes, and we've had other Giants fans on this podcast, and they've big timed us as well. And I got no leg to stand on, man. You got us twice. So you got, were you rooting for the Bucs this weekend? You must have been, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I You're didn't, all I don't Tom Brady's sick of fans. I, yeah, I, I wasn't <laughs> for gambling reasons, but. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I right, see. Right. I see. Gotcha. But, Allegedly. Yeah, it, Allegedly. Is it Leland him, Maine now? No. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Uh, w- wouldn't mind him getting to eight, obviously, just because it, it looks good for GOAT status. But yeah. I was so yeah. happy to potentially watch. Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers retire in the same like 24 hours. Oh, they, they still may. They still may. Right? I know. I'm hoping. I was like, did I just get to watch that? Thank goodness. Oh man. <laughs> but that, I mean, I, the total tangent, total sports tangent. How about the chiefs bills game? Oh man. That was insane. We're, we're going we're, off track here, Benny. We are. <laughs> we are. Come on. Get me back boys. Yeah. So this is one thing I've always kind of wondered. So like, like we said earlier, that whole graduation stage where you know, one day you're an opener, the next you're headlining. How is that? Like at that point, when you're an opener, yeah, some people are there for you. As a headliner, there's a damn good chance most people are there for you and they probably mm-hmm. know your stuff. And that must be a total game changer, right? For sure. Yeah, I think like it, it just went like step by step, you know, it was like at first, you know, you're in a van and it's just the four of you. And then it's like, all right, we should probably have someone out with us to help drive. And we got some merch now. So now, you know, we need someone. And it's like, oh, wow, we have too much merch. We need a trailer now. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, and I remember exactly when this happened. We were touring and we got offered that Rise Against tour. And we had realized we didn't have anybody on stage with us. So we're about to go play like fucking hockey arenas and if someone breaks a string, they're changing a string on stage. Like we don't have a person and we're like, Oh, we probably need a person, you know? (laughs) And like, so it just kind of went like step by step like that. It's really, uh, you fill it in by necessity. You know, when the stage gets bigger, you do what you got to do. And the room gets bigger, you do what you got to do and you adjust the set and you, yeah, you kind of just keep figuring it out. So it was like kind of a, I think by the time we were playing like the full headlining shows, it was, it had gone in such a progression that I think we were like fairly, fairly ready for it. Yeah. And you weren't industry plants. Like you paid your dues. Like this right. is, this is yeah. an organic progression yeah. where Definitely. it could go a different direction if you were a product of the label. That's right. And that, yeah. And that's where, I mean, you have, you know, that's when you get leverage in this business is when you create your own fans and then people are after you and your fans and you don't need them for that. So I think that's, you know, I know it's easier said than done, but it's definitely a good, a good thing to have in your pocket. If you're moving forward in the business, like you should rely on people who care about your band way more than you should rely on those outside forces. That is, that is the statement of the night right there. I love that. That's yeah. That will stick with me. <laughs> yep. Man. The way you're describing it, it reminds me of one of my favorite personal bands. Talk about it on here all the time is Pearl Jam. You know, they started as a similar to what you guys did. Grassroots, seen, paid their dues, had no expectations of any kind of success at all. The documentary PJ20 has Eddie interviewed. He talks specifically of 
yeah, we got so big, we, you know, we didn't see this coming, you know, we'd play right. festivals in Europe, but we'd go back to the States and play clubs. Like it was just a different, it was a weird dynamic to do the, you know, rock and rock and Rio or a reading festival right. and come back to the States and play access in Boston. But with that said, he's playing the sheds now when they go on tour, you know, it's 2022. Now he still says that he'll play songs that he knows that, you know, the mass audience wants to see but he knows deep down that there's Pearl Jam fans that have been there since 91. So he'll choose certain deep cuts that, you know, maybe 75% of the crowd doesn't know they're just there for the name brand Pearl Jam. Right. Um, and cater to that, you know, niche crowd that's there sure. for red, yellow, and black, just very specific songs. Is that something that, you know, you, you guys kind of implemented into your set kind of going through this crescendo of like, okay, like we're actually, people are here for us now. This is cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we tried to not play 59 sound, I think, once. Yeah. And <laughs> pissed you know, off a lot of people. Yeah. And like, and even though, like, you know, and we talked about it and it was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we're a little tired of playing the 59 sound. We got to play the 59 sound. Like, and it's for the same reason we talked about earlier is they, people paid for a ticket to see the show and they want to see the songs that they love the most. And yeah. And I know it takes like sometimes when you're young or like too full of yourself or too full of the situation, you forget that you're like, you need those fucking people out there to do what you do. And if you just want to go out there and play everything you want to play, you're going to disappoint a lot of people. And that's not what a show is about, you know, like a show is about this give and take between the two sides. So I think, what Eddie Vedder said is right. It's like you, you know, you got to play some of the mainstays and maybe you can figure out ways to do it that, that are a little more interesting and try them in different approaches or something. Like I noticed, you know, when we covered state of love and trust, any live version of state of love and trust is so fucking fast. It's like oh, twice yeah. the speed of the, of the cover. Super fa super and fast I had to make a yeah. choice when we covered it. I'm like, yo, I'm going closer to singles than their live version because that is a ripper and i want to like savor the song a little bit so <laughs> right i think that's what it's about but i mean all in all i think it's you got to create this balance of everyone having fun because it's like mutually beneficial you know if you're excited about the music and the songs it's better for the audience and if the audience is excited it's obviously way better for you but mm -hmm. I think that does take some time to figure out like not only how to construct sets like that, but also you kind of got to do like some weird version of like market research. Like you got to mm -hmm. play a song for like two weeks and see if anyone gives a fuck about it and what the reaction is like. And that's then true. that dictates what that song is like moving forward. And I think that's why when bands put out new records, why some of the sets are sometimes kind of awkward because you almost have to relearn how to play a song after you record an album. Like when you right. finish the album version, it sits there. It usually got done like three, four, five, six months mm -hmm. ago, you know, and, and maybe you did some stuff in the studio that wasn't quite like you were doing. So when you start coming back out with it, some songs present better live than you thought they would. Some present worse for whatever reason, like a song you would think, it's just going to ring with the crowd. It's just doing nothing. You don't really know why. So, yeah, I think you need that 
you need that time too. And that's where Pearl Jam's got a lot of market research. They, you know, I'm sure Eddie knows just what to pull out of his pocket to get whatever audience going, you know? Mm-hmm. I saw Snoop yeah. Dogg do that once. It was one of the most impressive things I've seen in a music festival. Snoop Dogg was playing, we were playing a giant festival in Belgium. And inexplicably, Snoop Dogg was about to go on at like 1230 in the afternoon. <laughs> and it was because he took two festivals in a day <laughs> to, to just get paid. So yeah. he was doing this 1230 in Belgium and then going for like a headliner in France or something, which was awesome to wow. begin with. And, you know, but he pulled out all the stuff. There's like 20 people on stage there's the blunt man there's the old man just dancing doing backups like it was a total scene and but you know it's belgium at 12 30 in the afternoon you can imagine it's like a sea of undrunk white people you know <laughs> like so even though they're having fun it's not really and i i was watching side stage and i saw snoop like come over to the side he talked to someone he talked to like a dj and 10 seconds later, fucking jump around by House of Pain comes on. <laughs> and for like a minute, Snoop just like dances around the jump around. Crowd starts going ape shit because I guess that's like undrunk white people catnip. And <laughs> uh, and and then all of a sudden the show was like lit. And I was like, oh my God, Snoop Dogg, the fucking puppet master. He's a genius. <laughs> he just you know? knew. He knew what song to play. <laughs> just wow. what to do. And it, yeah, so I think you get savvy, you know, they get yeah. savvy over the yeah. years. Or like totally. in Gaslight's case, we covered this one Stone Temple Pilots song once and we knew it was a reach because it was like one of the pop Stone Temple Pilots songs. But we're like, we love this song. Everyone hears this song on the radio. They'll love it. It fucking bombed. Like, wow. Two really? Wow. And even though we enjoyed playing it, we're like, all right, out of the rotation, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Oh man, it's so cool to hear it from your perspective. Because us as fans, I'm like, well, for me personally, when we were talking about Pearl Jam, I'm like, I would just play all the deepest cuts possible. But to your point, it doesn't transcend that way. Live, yeah, it always, it just doesn't always work. It's just not the case. Yeah, yeah, it's not reality. And yeah. and bands who do that usually suffer. I think honestly. Yeah, it's not Fugazi. You can't just be Fugazi. Right. <laughs> Fugazi can be Fugazi. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on a super small scale, even this podcast. Like, if we. We know that if we talk about Tool, everyone's going to love it. But if we did a, a dead guy episode, it just, no one, right. would, our audience wouldn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just got to, you got to pepper it in. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Find, find the bits and pieces to put in, but not, don't do a whole right. hour and a half on it. I got to do that in my podcast too. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You, we, we get, we get a couple questions about that too. That notion of like balance, that's a perfect segue into, major label signing so like the mercury island days to sign with a major you know kind of having your roots like there's a delicate dance you got to do right i mean there's you know you don't want to come across as sellouts you know dan ozzy did that whole book recently talking about (laughs) it good book i read it yeah how did you approach that and and how did mercury come into play oh there it is tone's holding it up nice yeah uh so we were getting like kind of those people fishing around pretty much immediately after 59 sound came out, we started getting interest from like majors and stuff like that. And we did, you know, at that time we hired like a fairly like, you know, not like an underground manager type. Like we hired like 
a manager manager type like the people who were like our team were like pro as fuck actually like old school pro people so but we mutually decided like well a we had signed to side one for more than a record so it was like you know we felt that actual like obligation there but we just thought like after 59 sound it was just like it's too quick like we didn't like the jump yet like something about it just felt murky and like we we wanted to do one more on side one and and really build like our thing just so it was so strong that we could do whatever the fuck we wanted kind of and it sort of worked because after american slang like just like the position we were in with sink or swim we kind of had our fill of the majors like we could have gone to a bunch of them and sure we did yeah. the whole thing we took the meetings we did the rounds like all the annoying shit like you see in movies like the showcase yeah i mean really like some some were good some were like horrendously tacky and weird where like people lost us within 30 seconds sometimes and wow. we kind of had a reputation even like in these meetings apparently like <laughs> I never knew, but apparently we were known in the business as like surly punks. Cause like, I don't know, we were like straight shooters in meetings or something. And I, I don't really know why that happened. So, so we would take those things. And I remember, uh, Alex Levine and I, we were like, yo, we got to get one of these bills up to a thousand dollars. Like we're not a real band unless we get one of these major label dinners up to a G no and, nice and we tried so hard we would walk in I'd be like yo give me like that nicest scotch like give me a double and he would get something and but the problem was like Brian not into that shit so like mm. Brian would show up we would chill you'd have like a burger like chicken fingers a coke and like 45 minutes go by and we're like meetings done and like, we're not going to a second location with these people. So we never got up to a thousand dollars. I tried, but you know, we met like a lot of the, the real cheesy people, the cool people. And it, again, it was just like intuition. It was just like the place that felt right. The person who was signing us there had broke the killers not long before. And we nice. saw the killers as like a pretty good major label model not a spe not like their aesthetic and stuff at the time but like every one of those labels has like their big like flagship band and then actually the other one we were really considering was like warner with the foo fighters and and i, I mean it was really like intuition and just like a jump i think we were definitely impressed with like the things they'd done in the past and just having that imprint on the record but I would like to say it was some like match made in heaven type of scenario, but it was really just like taking a bunch of meetings and kind of being like, all right, that one, that one feels the best. I well, think kind of like yeah. side one dummy. It sounds like, you know? Yeah. 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 Like there wasn't some like full intention. It was just like, we went into it open and that one felt like it would, it would be the best at the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's good. When you know, Nothing you know, too sexy there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've had enough steak dinners. You're like, all right, you know, I think this steak is actually legit. You know, steak I'm a fucking like vegetarian too. So that's where these things were ridiculous. They're like, we're meeting in this steakhouse. So I'm like, great. Like, 
I just had two scotches, au gratin potatoes, and I already got to drive home. Like this isn't working out good, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Totally. And you know, it's sleazy. So you're like, this is already bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. And well, yeah. I'm, try I'm trying to think like, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, which is difficult because we're not a band. We're just a, you know, podcast year trying to live vicariously <laughs> through your shoes. But when something like this does come through, we always wonder like, is there add-ons is there like value that's in this meeting that there wasn't in meeting on wednesday and friday you come and all of a sudden hey we got this and also if you sign with us you know we have a great relationship with brendan o'brien are you a fan well we were talking about pearl jam earlier for mm -hmm. me obviously brendan o'brien's like the holy grail so is this something that was you know in the contract or is this something you're like hey i'll sign to you but i have a few producers in mind that i'd like to kind of round down to it's an interesting question uh Brendan didn't have anything to do with it, but cause I mean, honestly, like that shit's just about money. Like if you have enough okay. money, you can get a bunch of different producers. Like, yeah. um, so, so it's, adv it's advanced driven. Yeah. It's advanced driven, but also as far as the things that like some can offer that others couldn't. And especially at the time, I think now that you bring it up, it was driven by radio. Um, okay. Yeah, like actually the woman who was, you know, the head of radio at Mercury at the time was like very well respected. And they kind of had this idea that they could get us consistently into, you know, like the big, you know, LAK rock and the New York ones, like, which are the feeder stations. Like essentially, if you get in regular rotation on like K Rock LA, like the yeah. entire rest of America, like, dominoes off of that so i can see that so these, these people do really crazy shit to get i mean they go and wine and dine like radio people like they'll go to the office with like gifts and food and like all this shit and like oh yeah play him this song and try to get them worked up like it's a it's a fucking thing like oh yeah, Iola. yeah. all day i've been i've been oh, in yeah. those dinners so I we've know been exactly. to a few of them nate haven't we yeah oh yeah, yeah. so i've so, seen it first we've seen it first yeah. yeah so that shit's kind of <laughs> dirty and ugly and this side of the business that like you don't want to do yourself you know like and mm -hmm. you, you want a shark to talk to the sharks and i think that was part of it and yeah. something else was, i mean there was another thing where it was like as far as the scruples went of signing to a major label, which there were many, especially for me, like the one thing that happened was we were playing these shows and these festivals. And I started like looking out and seeing that, like I'm being paid by like Jägermeister or Budweiser or like these giant sponsors of these things. And I had almost realized like, it was like, fuck, like I'm in this thing already. Like I didn't really know I was and I didn't ask to be and it grew. And before you know it, you're playing, you know, Live Nation gigs and you're playing these things that like, you're like, fuck, I'm in the corporate monster like already. Like I didn't even know mm -hmm. I was there. And there was part of it and part of my logic then was like, yo, like that means like they're taken from us. So that means like, we got fucking get ours. Like, right. Like we're totally. here. So like, we got to get some of this, you know, <laughs> like, like, cause if we don't, this schmuck who makes like $400,000 a year to <laughs> right. like yank off your record to radio is going to get all of it. So I'll take some, you know, like, it's funny you say that Benny, cause I'm going to kind of bring this full circle. 
coming up the way you did, being like the one man show at the Manville Elks, like being street smart, you could recognize that. Where if you're at some other band from from Maine who has no street smarts, has no experience, they're not going to see that. They're not going to see like, you know, if they're eating, we need to eat. So I feel like (laughs) did did that upbringing kind of like, could you see bullshit as a result of your upbringing, you think? Yeah. And booking the shows and see booking the whole picture. Sure. Yeah. 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 I think just in general and, and it wasn't just me like, yeah, I think me and the guys had intuition about stuff like that, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a yes. Yeah. You, you weren't just again, industry plant. You weren't just, we're going to put you guys on. We're (laughs) going to, we're going to sell you to everybody. No, you've, you've, you've lived it. You've been up, you've been in the small venues. Yep. You know what I used to bring up all the time was when I heard the story that Wu Tang, when they like split off to each do their solo records, they all went to different labels to make sure mm. that the Wu Tang Enterprise wow. was awesome. like encompassing the industry and shit. And I always thought of like like people like that, you know. It's like I'm like I'm not meant to be here, you know. So like fuck it, like I'm gonna take from these people while I am, you know. I mean, we we could go on about the about that side of it for a while. I know Nate Nate having formerly worked at a major or interned at a oh. major, his wheels are spinning, but. We're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna cut him off. Yeah, yeah. Nate, want, Nate would like to go Nate for an hour and a half. Dig. Nate but wants... it's only it's only seven thirty. Nate's time. So yeah, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so you you've done the you, you signed with Mercury, and then the Island record comes out, Get Hurt, which is amazing record. We did a Perfect Songs episode a few weeks ago, and the title oh, nice. track was one of my picks. Great. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, great thanks. song. Appreciate that. But, um, you know, you guys, we won't get into the, the details of you guys, you know, kind of going on a hiatus or, or taking a break. But now you're in kind of a full circle moment. You're in Mercy Union. You know, do you think all that, like the last hour and a half kind of prepared you for this to see the good and the bad of indie, major, DIY? Because <laughs> you've, you've, done, you've done and seen it all. It's cool. It is cool going through this because I don't. I don't think of things like chronologically, you know, and I don't see things on like a broad scale sometimes. So it is cool to, when you wrap it up like this, things make like a little more sense about your decisions and, you know, but things will probably also, I'll think later in life, I'll be like, oh yeah, that guy was a fucking prick. That's why I didn't sign with that label. <laughs> or like, you know, there were probably details in the, in the pudding there, you know? We got, we got a couple lightning rounds. They don't necessarily fit in the chronological, you know, this is your life part of the, the interview. Sure, so, sure. So uh, first off, uh, <laughs> this is obviously topical for with all that's gone on in the music industry the last week or so, but were you guys asked to be on the When We Were Young Festival? <laughs> <laughs> I, if we were, I didn't. The offer didn't cross my desk. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a chance. Yeah. I, it seems like they just put out like a blanket, like right? like a mass email to the like a band group list. Just be like you guys, you guys want to play um, yeah, for for three minutes and then you're done. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I did you see that tweet the Riot Fest put out about it? <laughs> no. They're like, they're like if if your if your show is only one day long, it's a concert, not a festival. True. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, throwing smoke Riot Fest. There. Although they just added a third day today. Yeah, oh, they did. Yeah. yeah. Same lineup every know. day. So I don't know how that's going to work. 
Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Hope those kids have fun out there in Vegas. I bet the casinos are gonna fucking make a killing because oh yeah. I for some reason I just assume like Paramore fans are like not savvy gamblers, you know. (laughs) They may not be. Yeah, they may not be. Yeah, I don't think so. I think we got a lot of slot players, let's just (laughs) say coming. (laughs) Penny slots. Yeah, a lot of pennies. Mandalay Bay yeah. just licking their chops right now. Right. <laughs> Bring on the emo kids. Buy all our hairspray and feed feed us with slots. Yeah. So we had to ask that one. Yeah. Yeah. So, Benny, we're uh, obviously big Celtics fans coming from the Northeast. We know you're a Nets nice. fan. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you come to terms with the fact that the Nets will come up short this year? And, and, well, and it's Kyrie's fault. Like, how do yeah, you sleep Kyrie's at night? Fault. How do you strange question that? strange question <laughs> i know how you boston fans feel about Kyrie, and i i don't necessarily blame you i mean got up in front of the arena said i'm like a celtic forever and then what left what, four months later yep. and, like and he's burning sage so, just and he checked out too that was the other the piece. burning <laughs> see this is this is where i'm torn about Kyrie, and maybe you can let go of your celtics thing for a second to see it the way i see it which is as a lifelong punk rocker, I do enjoy shit stirs. Mm-hmm. And yep. like back in the day, I was like, I don't think Kyrie Irving thinks the earth is flat. Right. I was like, I think he's kind of fucking with people. I think he's like enjoying <laughs> this. I think he likes knocking people off kilter a little. And I kind of like that. I also like the idea of an athlete being like, you know what? I'll take it tonight off. Yeah. Like that kind of makes me laugh too. And I think it's sort of funny. But that's also because I'm way less invested in like fanhood than I used to be. Sure. And if you asked me that like 10 years ago, I would have been like, fucking bum, doesn't deserve his paycheck. Get him the fuck out of here. I would have sounded like like Sal from Staten Island on the fan. But yeah, yeah I, I try to be a little cooler about it. But to your point, you know, Kyrie's antics very well might it might curb the Nets' chances to win this year. Like, it's just real. If they play the Knicks in a playoff series, he will not be playing at all. If he plays the Raptors in a playoff series, he will not be playing at all. The way the beard looks, you know, at times, like, it's, yeah, I think it's troubling. But the one thing is that um, I don't see anyone else really popping out in the East there that's that's taking them. And it's certainly not the Celtics. I've been seeing No, it's not the Celtics. yeah. You know what? Uh, Enos Freedom isn't going to carry us yeah, to the promise. If, if you're given, if if I'm seeing twenty plus minutes of Romeo Langford at night, it's not <laughs> yeah, happening, trouble. boys. It's not happening, boys. Not I, I mean, and I know you. I know he's down right now, but you've got KD coming back, and I mean, he's he's one of the yeah. best to do it right now. So, I mean, maybe like that's one thing that's been a lot of fun. I mean, because I've been a Nets fan, you know, pretty much my whole life, and the fact that the Nets turned from what the Nets were, which was like the absolute afterthought laughing stock of the NBA, basically for years to like the heels in like a year and a half is really bizarre to swallow. But if there's anything I've really loved about it, I mean, I've never, you know, I'm a season ticket holder. I've never gotten to watch a basketball player on a night in and night out basis, like Kevin Durant. And it's Mm -hmm. a fucking joy, like an absolute pleasure, you know, like just watching that guy work is, is amazing. It really is. 
I mean, he's he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, right? no matter what think, he does from here on out. I think I, I do, uh, if all stands as it is, I, I kind of do like the Bucks coming out of the East still. You know, I, I, they're they're a real strong team. If they're healthy, I, I kind of like the Bucks coming out of the East. Yeah. And they've done it. Did it last year. Yeah. They had everything break right for them, and KD's toe was a little too long, but yeah, they did oh, it. <laughs> just a, an eighth of an inch, an yeah. eighth of an inch. Paul Millsap, we, we we might pick up that scrap heap actually in Boston. That could happen. Yeah. He's like, he could give 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 a team like eight to ten functional minutes tonight. <laughs> uh, can't be any worse than Joe Johnson. So he's not kicking around too smooth these days. Yeah. Uh, this is a tweener year for the Celtics anyway. That next year is gonna be the year. I feel it. Why? What's happening next year? It's just I, the same. I don't know. I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> Tony's got a feeling. It's the same team with another draft pick in the twenties. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe a trade. Do. I don't know, man. Do. Don't Pey- know. Peyton me... Pritchard in a contract year. No. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I don't know uh, about that. You got me. You got me. Sun's not shining too bright. We'll see. Yeah, I can. I'm just gonna clutch 08 because that was the one I remembered. It happened to me. They won in '86 too, but we were. I was two, so listen. You know what I believe in these days? I am a Nets fan, but I'm a basketball fan, so. It's just like when the time comes, I hope you can enjoy the playoffs, enjoy some beautiful basketball while not being in it. <laughs> Got me. Yep. Sorry, that question started with a burn. I had to finish it. You had, oh, no, absolutely. I appreciate, no, the, we, I appreciate the burn. We, we baited that. We deserve that. <laughs> uh, Benny, we, we got one more? I think it's probably, I don't know. I don't want to keep you, Benny. I mean, Nate's, Nate wants a, a two-hour special so bad. Uh, I love I love long form. Nate doesn't edit. Nate doesn't edit the podcast. So. <laughs> well, with that said, yeah, with that said, I got one more. Oh, do so you? We're all you do well, it because all of us, anyway? all four, all four of us got podcasts here, right? Yeah. So we're all kind That's of true. in it, That's in true. it, in it to win it. You know, trying to figure it out in real time. Uh, drink, it's an inside <laughs> joke there, but um, regardless, podcast. We're all podcasters here. We just wonder, like, you got your listenership and guests. Like, any advice for us? Personally, I know like, you've been kind of going at it for quite a while. Oh, and doing a podcast? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm really still trying to figure out a lot of it myself. Like, I, um, I really enjoy the medium. I think, like, I think there's a very, like, open-ended future to it, you know? Like, I totally. see a lot of these really, really advanced, like, podcast series coming out and stuff, and I think that stuff's going to grow. But as far as advice, I mean... I don't know. I guess it's the same that that I kind of have with interviews and stuff as I do with the podcast is like, just to make sure that you're speaking about things that like, uh, you're honest and care about, and you'll never get into trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. like, yeah, like if you, if you just like, approach things in a generally good direction like that, then yeah, you can't get into trouble. And I think if you have mm-hmm. listeners, like, like sticking to your uh, schedule seems really important. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think yeah. that even as just a, pa- a podcast listener, like, cause I am an avid podcast listener. I get pissed if like, I'm like, where's my fucking ESPN daily this morning, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. man. I don't, I don't want this replay. Like what's up, Pablo? Yeah. So I think like, you know, if people are anticipating something every Wednesday at a certain time, it's probably good. You do that most of the time. I think, that seems to be where most podcasts fail is like people who they have the idea, they get into it, get consistent with it for a while and then kind of teeters off, you know? And like, I think if you stay consistent with this stuff, like, you know, that, that's a big, that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's basically a hybrid of being somewhat systematic, but ultimately just genuine and just truthful because you yeah, know, you're talking about playing shows with Pearl Jam. Like, you know, we're just stoked to be interviewing people like you so we can actually talk about real questions that if we had met you at a show, we'd be asking these same questions, but not so much long form. So well, you missed the chance to hear about the corona I had with Edved. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was anticlimactic. It was <laughs> he was cool. He was cool. Nothing crazy happened though. Benny, thank you for coming on with us tonight, man. Really appreciate it. A lot of fun talking to you. Thank you, Anthony, Tony, Nate. Nice. <laughs> nice gentleman. Nice gentleman. It's Love it. real. Love it. Thank you so much. We appreciate this. Nah, no worries, guys. Awesome, Benny. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.